So now let's turn in the scriptures to Matthew chapter 13. I had, I guess it was Kent, read um, the first few verses of the chapter, but we're not really focused on those this morning. That was to add context. A focus today is on the two parables in verses 46, or 44 through 246. So let's, let's pray as we, as we begin. Father God, Lord, we are so thankful to be here in your presence, to be able to worship you, to be able to study your scriptures, the word. Father, teach us today from the Bible, we pray. Lord, that as we um, think, as we consider, as we, as we listen to the scriptures, we pray that your spirit might be working in each of our hearts so that our eyes might be turned to you in a way from the things of, of, this, of this earth. Lord, we are thankful um, for what you will be doing in our lives, even, even this morning. In your name, amen. Several years ago, while traveling in South Asia, I was worshiping during a church service and preparing to preach in a few minutes when someone motioned me over and asked if I wanted to go upstairs and see a woman who had been demonically possessed since the night before. Curious as to the details, I went upstairs and spent a few minutes interacting with the woman who alternated between struggling and rest, screaming and silence. We sang, we prayed for her, and we went back downstairs and preached in a way and in circumstances that we're not familiar with to me here in the U.S. Later that day, it was as if this woman awoke from her possession and resumed a typical attitude and behavior and activity. Similar stories marked our path in Asia with accounts of people who were under the control of evil. Some for a few hours, others for a much longer period of time with houses dedicated to Satan, temples throughout the streets, idols in the taxi, taxis and homes. For the people that were impacted, many attempted self-harm or threatened other people around them in a way that was not natural for them. We had unanswered questions, but it was clear that we had an enemy who was out to destroy and to kill without mercy. An enemy who was eager equally to target the destitute and the weak. Fast forward to the spring of 2020, New Hope was going through a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and the waves of COVID were spreading throughout the nation and the globe. It was during that time that I sat in my office and watched businesses fall and other businesses prosper and the world change. With the words of Ecclesiastes, the message of the vanity and the mystery of so much of what has happened and is happening in life playing out even before our eyes, that I thought through the purpose of my business 
and of the focus of my life. Those two experiences had a profound impact on my life. Instead of living my life with a primary focus on accounting and a secondary focus on ministry with my spare time, I was forced to grapple with the possibility and likelihood of turning my focus increasingly toward ministry. This marked the beginning of a series of events that eventually led to the setting of today as my wife and I prepare for the immediate future. One of the questions that I ultimately was forced to grapple with during those recent years is the question of what do I value in life? And what will I value in life? So today I want to take this opportunity to turn this question around and ask each of you, what will you value in life? Will value as in the future sense? Do value as in the present sense? What do you value today in your life? What will you value in the future in your life? To do this and try to cover such a big picture topic in a brief amount of time, I'm breaking it down by way of three additional questions. First question, how can I be sure that I'll make the right choices in life? Second, how can I be sure that I'll be happy in life? And the third question, how can I be sure that I'll succeed in life? In exploring the first question, how can I be sure that I make the right choices in life? I want to look at two of the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13, these, these parables mentioned. The parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. Two parables, three verses. Let's read those verses again. Matthew 13:44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two parables are kingdom parables, examples of the kingdom of heaven. There are some differences between these two parables, but a very similar message. The first parable tells about a man who apparently was not seeking anything specific, but then he stumbled across the greatest treasure of his life. The second parable records the story of a seasoned merchant who was seeking fine pearls as his job, and that he was eagerly and, and faithfully seeking out fine prayers. And then he discovered the one that put all the others to shame. In both, there's this concept of, there's the, the finding, there's the selling, there's the, the buying. And for the second, it's seeking, then finding, selling, buying. In both stories, the man realized that there was something that was greater than everything he owned. 
and that he must sell everything else to obtain the prized possession. In this case, in the context of the parable, talking about the kingdom of heaven, the man had to give up everything, or we have to give up everything to obtain the kingdom of heaven. And can we not say that same thing for us in our life on the kingdom of heaven? Are we making the kingdom of heaven the focal point of the choices we make in our lives as we think about why we do what we do? Spurgeon wrote this about this passage. What is our main objection in life, objective in life? Say to yourself, I can only live for two things. I can live for God or I can live for the devil. Which now am I going to do? Have a definite and distinct objective or else your vital energies will be wasted and your most industrious days will be recklessly squandered. Two choices, living for God or living for the devil. Jesus presented this as a question as well in Luke 9, 23 through 25. And he said to all, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if, it, if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And then also Jesus speaking in Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In the parable, these two, in these two parables, these two men found that focal point of their lives and their decisions became easier in the pursuit of what would happen next. And for us, when we have made, if we make and have made the decision to pursue Christ, to surrender our lives to Christ, then that changes the dynamic for what we will pursue and how we will pursue things in our, in our lives. I want to speak specifically and directly to those who are far from God right now to ask you what what is your pursuit in life what will you sell what will you give up to know God to know Jesus and these are these are not these are questions for all of us to consider are you willing to sell your righteousness there's deeds and there's good works that you think are quite valuable to God and to others. You all must go to receive the righteousness of Christ. Are you willing to sell your spiritual biases? There's understandings and beliefs that keep you from having a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. You all must go to walk in newness of life. Are you willing to sell your social status, 
those relationships that pull you deeper into a life apart from God? Beware that the friendships of this earth don't cloud your desire for truth. Are you willing to sell your financial wealth? That desire to focus on financial success now and spiritual growth later? Beware that the deceitfulness of riches don't choke out the gospel in your life. Are you willing to sell your youth? Thinking that you are too young and need to experience more in life before you set her down on a religion? Life will pass sooner than you imagine. Are you willing to sell your old age? Thinking that you're too old and your past is too cloudy to follow Christ now? The thief on the cross made all the wrong choices in life until the last few hours of his life and then he was saved for eternity. It's not too late. Questions to consider. What are we willing to give in exchange for the kingdom of heaven? I'm moving quickly here, but I want to move into the second point. And I want to share some statistics that are helpful in framing the second question. How can I be sure that I'll be happy in life? I was born in the generation known as the millennials. Those Americans who were born between the years 1981 and 1996. So that makes me a millennial. In a survey of millennials as referenced in the Harvard seminar article earlier this year, when asked what they wanted in their adult life, over 80% said they wanted to get rich. 50% said they wanted to get famous. And 50% said they wanted high career achievements. However, the article went, out to, went on to point out that studies show that as many Western countries, including the U.S., have become wealthier, general happiness levels have decreased. $75,000 a year average household income is the level at which happiness seems to peak, the level at which the basic economic needs of food, housing, health care, child support, etc. can be met. When people's annuals, annual income becomes higher than that sum, their happiness levels don't go up much. The difference between 75,000 and 75 million was hardly significant. End quote. Consider the message of the parable of the sower that we read earlier from Matthew 13. Verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. There is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. There is the joy of hearing and receiving the word. 
yet it does not last. Few of any people who profess Christ make it a deliberate strategy of making shipwreck of their faith. Whether through the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of riches or the tribulation of persecution that seeks out those who proclaim the name of Christ. Yet that seems to be their strategy because they accomplished it very successfully. Why is that? Because their eyes were taken off Christ and their hearts were never captivated by the glories of Christ. They did not cling to Christ and they eventually let go. The Harvard study, 75 million versus 75,000. These people that are professing Christ, but then they let the deceitfulness of this earth drag them away from the gospel. Consider the two men in our parables. Both sold all that they had to obtain the prized possession. We don't know how long it took them to accumulate their belongings. Years, perhaps decades. And they likely had much joy in buying and and using and owning those goods. Yet there came a point where it all had to go. Where they once had joy in acquiring, now there was joy in selling. They were happier, actually, to sell than to buy. Happier in the the day that their, their personal possessions disappeared than in the day that they arrived. To translate that parable into application, these men were willing to give up everything to enter the kingdom of heaven to know Christ. They gave everything to make their fortune. And that was exactly what happened. They made their fortune. These guys became rich. The treasure in the field made the first guy wealthy. Much, much beyond what he had originally. And it made him extremely happy. The Pearl of Great Price did the same thing for the merchant with him. Exchanging all his possessions for one item that made him very wealthy. What about believers who have made the exchange, that exchange of giving up their lives for Christ and have given all for Christ? Are they now poor? By no means. Boyce writes about this parable, you are not called to poverty in Christ, but to the greatest of spiritual wealth. You are not called to disappointment, but to fulfillment. You are not called to sorrow, but to joy. How could it be otherwise when the treasure is the only Son of God? How can the outcome be bad when it means salvation? And as one other author wrote, To those who want unfailing comfort, I entrust you to Christ. In Him alone there is no failure. The rich are often disappointed in their wealth. The educated are disappointed in their books. Husbands are disappointed in their wives. Wives are disappointed in their husbands. That's true. Parents are disappointed in their children. Politicians are disappointed when after many struggles they attain position and power. 
they find out that it is more pain than pleasure, that it is disappointment, annoyance, incessant trouble, worry, vanity, and frustration. No one, though, was ever disappointed in Christ. End quote. Think about the joy of knowing Christ and giving all for him. There is no ultimate disappointment. Entrusting your happiness in this life to Christ gives you that rock-solid assurance you need to survive and to thrive. One more story I want to read from Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I said to my soul, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We don't know how this man came across his wealth, if he inherited it, or he spent his life accumulating, accumulating the wealth, but he was gone in a night. Personally, I have investments. I'm setting aside funds for future expenditures. The issue is not with these financial resources. Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But if I'm, if these things, if these financial, financial possessions are where I'm placing my hope, I'd better take care that my heart is not being motivated by covetousness. My joy and contentment may disappear overnight if I am trusting in the wealth of this earth. A wise woman once told me that I worry too much about money. I let it play too much into cal the calculations of how many hours I should work as opposed to spending time on ministry. Instead of being anxious about the needs and cares of this world, I should seek first the kingdom of God even if that means less financial success, encouraged this woman. The Lord will provide the financial resources for the needs and opportunities given to me. That conversation remained in my mind as, even as I eventually concluded that her assessment was correct. Now that this woman has become my wife and has a better understanding of my finances and how I accountant things. I'm not sure she would completely agree with her original assessment, but the point remains unchanged. 
that our joy in life comes not from our physical possessions, but from Christ. And in considering what it means to follow Christ and live for Him, we receive guidance in 2 Corinthians 5.18, where Paul wrote that God, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. Believers are the ambassadors of Christ. Quite simply, what are you doing as the ambassador of Christ? Is your ambassadorship of Christ where you find your joy and the joy of the Lord? One of the considerations that gives great insight into the third question, how can I be sure that I succeed in life, is to truly evaluate and define the definition of success for you. For those who do not believe in Jesus, this definition will be very different. Once you understand what is success for you, once you understand your mission, your vision, the values for your life, then it becomes easier to quantify how to achieve those purposes. The purpose of your life and understanding that purpose becomes an integral part of realizing success. A lot of information has been written about the mindset of the millennial generation, so I'm going to add more information. And I want to give some, and I gave statistics already about the millennial attitude, but now I want to read from an article published in 2019 and written by Tim Challies on the coming millennial midlife crisis. And this lengthy quote, I start, I quote from Charlie's. One of the things I most admire about the millennial generation is their desire to make a difference in the world. They are convinced that it's their responsibility to make the world a better place. Not only that, but they believe they actually can. It's little wonder then that it's so easy to rally this generation to the sake of causes. Climate change, or gun control, or social inequities, or other matters of justice. They've got a high assessment of both the responsibility and their ability. But the millennial generation is not as young as they once were. The vanguard is nearing the end of their 30s and rapidly approaching their 40s. And with it, they're nearing the age they're likely to encounter the dreaded midlife crisis. When we are young, we have a sense of optimism and a heightened assessment of our abilities. We believe we can conquer the world, or at least bend it to our will. We always know that at some point we will die, but that time is so distant that it's ethereal, so far off that we've still got a whole lifetime to achieve our goals or to far exceed them. Then we hit 40 or 45 and realize that life is suddenly half over. We are forced to look at, look at a paltry list of accomplishments to concede or lack 
of skills to admit our increasingly weariness, to acknowledge our decreasing strength, and to face the fact that we won't be nearly what we thought we would be and do. We won't be remembered among, among the great, greats. We won't be the subject of biographies. We won't change the world. Our hearts begin to echo the despairing cry to sage, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Of all generations, it's the millennials who have had the deepest sense that it's their responsibility to save the earth, to better society, to rescue humanity. From childhood, they've been told that, it, that their parents and grandparents broke this world, pillaged its resources, unbalanced its economy, and harmed its people. From grade school, They've been assured it falls to them to pull it all back from the brink of destruction. They are convinced they are equal to the challenge. An incredible nine of ten millennials believe it is their responsibility to make a measurable difference in this world, while six of ten believe they themselves will make some great contribution in their lifetime. End quote. So where does that leave us for making sure that we will succeed in life and accomplish our purposes? The answer to knowing that we have success in life is not by tying our life success to finances, education, family, or accomplishments. Nor is it even necessarily in homeschooling, going overseas, or evangelism. Instead, Jesus provides the foundation for success in parable form in Matthew 13. Paul states the foundation for success in theological form with a criteria for life success given in 1 Corinthians 15. And you may recall in 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter opens with Paul talking about of all people, he, is most, he and Christians are most miserable if the resurrection did not happen. But he concludes the chapter in verses 57 and 58. After going through this lengthy discourse on the resurrection and of, the, of Jesus Christ's past resurrection and our future resurrection, he says this in verse, verses 57 and 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing, guaranteed, assured, in the Lord for Christ. Your labor what we do in life, and not in vain, not wasted, there will be a reward. You have succeeded. That phrase contains the answer to the question of success. Think about an imaginary person for a minute who stays very, very busy. Think about the beginning and the end of their busy day the beginning and the end of a busy week for them, the beginning and the end of a busy year, 
beginning and the end of a busy decade. And the beginning and the end of the busy life. At the end of each of these, whether day, week, year, decade, life, envision the difference for this person if they are someone who focused on living for themselves versus living for the Lord. In the first case, the person will come to the end of their life and find out that any small good that was done in their life brought no eternal reward. In the second case, this person, though many may not have considered their life to be a success on this earth, will find a wealthy eternal reward waiting for them in in heaven. Consider what God would have you do with your life, especially for the children and for the young people here. What would God have you do with your life? Read Romans 12. Read 1 Corinthians 12. Consider the spiritual gifts and the fruits of the Spirit. The choices we make, the happiness we seek, the success we desire, these are all governed by what we value in life. Let that value be dictated by the Lord. So our last question of this morning, this message. How is the Lord calling you to labor for him? Let's pray. Father, we, we worship you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness to us for your sovereignty, for your holiness. Lord, we pray that you would be working in each of our lives to accomplish your purposes in all things. Lord, we we love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.